As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, Pat Kiley and Rebecca Price have been through something that hopefully very few couples anywhere will ever have to experience. They were told that the unborn child Rebecca was carrying had a fatal fetal abnormality and they proceeded to a termination on that basis. Later, they were told a mistake had been made, that there was no abnormality. This week, the High Court was told that the hospital concerned and the clinic where the scans were taken all admitted liability for the catastrophic error. It brought the couple to the point where, as their solicitor Kuivahahi said, they are at the beginning of the end of a harrowing, cruel and torturous journey. Earlier this week, the couple spoke to me for this podcast. Just to let you know, Pat Kiley is an orthopaedic surgeon who is well known for his work with children who have scoliosis and indeed for campaigning on their behalf. He's an extremely busy man and he joined myself and Rebecca a few minutes after we began the interview. Rebecca, could you just start um, in terms of your experience? In December 2018, yourself and Pat, you heard that you were pregnant and quite obviously an occasion of great joy. And then you uh, went for a scan to uh, the uh, Marion Fetal Health Clinic on the 21st of February. Yeah, so um, like it was a very much wanted pregnancy. It was planned. We were elated. Um, we actually found out on Christmas Eve that we were expecting um, a baby. Um, it was, as you say, like the most incredible, joyous moment that you could ever like want as a, as a couple. Um, we decided to, like most people do keep the pregnancy in the early stages, um, quiet. So we, we kept it a secret and, um, we wanted to have a 12 week scan just to ensure that, you know, everything was good. And, um, so we could start telling people. So the, the first scan date that we had through actually would have put us more at about 18 weeks. Um, so we were keen to, um, we were keen to, to find out if everything was okay. So we looked for a private clinic that offered a 12 week scan we went to the Marion Fetal Health Clinic, um, had a scan, and um, everything was was normal. Um, as I was getting dressed, I was just making small talk with the with the the nurse who had done the ultrasound, and I just was asking, "Did everything look good?" And she was saying it did. 
And then I mentioned about the nuchal folds because I'd read that that could indicate potential issues. And she said that um, that was a different type of scan um, that you had to pay more for, or there was a um, a test that you could have, which was called the Harmony test, which would 99% accurately detect whether um, your child had a trisomy. Um, and that's trisomy 13, which is commonly known as Patel syndrome, trisomy 18, Edwards syndrome, and trisomy 21, Down syndrome. Um, she said that if we had it done that day, because we'd already had the scan, there would be a discounted rate. Um, we left the Marion Fetal Health. Um, Pat and I went over the road and had a coffee and looked at our scan pictures and we were over the moon and so happy and just were trying to do everything like right. And it was, you know, first, um, first child for us both. And, um, we talked about what they'd said about this blood test and we, couldn't see any reason why we wouldn't have it. We were trying to safeguard our child and we decided to have the test, um, the Harmony. So I went back over to the clinic and had the bloods taken and um, was told that I would hear within seven days um, the results. Um Seven days later, um, I received a phone call from the professor and she asked me if I wanted to have the test results over the phone or if I wanted to come into the clinic. Now, I know that the professor doesn't ring you with the results if everything is good. Um, and she basically told me that um, the test had shown that um, there was a 99% potential that our child had trisomy 18, Edwards syndrome, um, but that I would need to have a definitive test to um, confirm the diagnosis. So I went into the National Maternity Hospital um, on the Monday and we had what's called a chorionic villus sample where cells are taken from the placenta and um, we were told that this would then um, show whether or not Christopher, well, our baby, we didn't know it was a boy at the time, if our baby had trisomy 18 or not. Um, I received a call on the Friday and it was from one of the nurses who um, rang to confirm that the, the CVS had come back positive for trisomy 18. Um, we then met with the professor on the Monday and um, went through the results and were told that this was um, trisomy 18, full-blown trisomy 18, um, that it was black and white, that we had two 99% positive tests, which would have equated to a 1 in 10,000 chance. Um, when we asked if there was any hope if there was any other clinical explanation um, because what's important to note is that we'd had two normal ultrasound scans at this time 
we were told that no, that the DNA was more accurate than the ultrasounds and that um, that this was um, a trisomy 18 baby. Um, both Pat and myself were um, very um, clear that we weren't scared of having a disabled child. We've both had experience of working with disabled children and um, that having a child that had major needs and major medical limitations wasn't um that didn't that didn't scare us we were prepared to be parents to um a child with with any needs um but we were told that this was lethal fatal and that the child the baby would probably die within me during the course of the pregnancy or within a few hours of birth. Um, so it was to us, the decision was to lose Christopher or lose our baby, should I say, we didn't, they didn't know he was a boy at the time, lose our baby now, earlier on in the pregnancy, um, or to, 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 to lose the baby later on when the pregnancy was more advanced um, or within hours of birth. It, it was an impossible situation and an impossible choice. Um, but we um, had asked virently to question after question as to the how sure, how clear, um, and we were told that unless we had religious reasons we would terminate the child and the termination occurred on i think it was the 14th of march 2019 yeah the um the 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 process is um is it's two stages um there's an initial stage where you take tablets which happened on the tuesday and then i went into the national maternity hospital on the thursday um and you administered another set of tablets and um, we delivered, I delivered um, Christopher on that Thursday. And subsequently you, um, yourself and Pat, you, you brought Christopher down to, um, you had him cremated. Yeah, um, I, Christopher um, was and was a little baby and um, I had him in a basket with me um, from nine o'clock on the Thursday evening until 2 p.m. the following day when I was discharged. Um, the, um, the midwives were beautiful people and had put him in a um, basket and had he was with me um, and um we we had him cremated the following Tuesday and um we put his ashes in Kerry on the mountain behind our house. And then subsequently you got a call, I understand, from the hospital. So we went into the process of grief um in the early days after um after the termination, the delivery of Christopher. Um, I found it extremely hard um, with the feeling of loss 
and um both Pat and I were both just devastated um we um it it's um when you're put with the decision as to whether to go through with the pregnancy knowing that the child has a fatal fetal abnormality um versus making the decision it's um it's 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 horrendous um i had um after the delivery i, I had retained some placental material which had meant that it was necessary for me to go into the national maternity hospital regularly to have scans to check as to whether it had passed um and i was also under the care of bereavement services and um two nurses in particular had um been an absolute pillar of support to me so i was regularly there um i was due to have a scan on the 4th of april which was um a the last of the scans just to ensure that everything internally had got back to normal and we received a phone call a week before that scan um asking us to come in for an earlier appointment because the professor um had to leave at a certain time so could we could we go in earlier um i said that we were due to come in for a scan we didn't have an appointment with the professor but the nurse said oh the professor would like to see you um i could just tell that there was something unnerving in her voice she didn't seem as um as assured as she was usually with me on the phone um and my mind started to think what's going on and i asked her is is everything okay and um she she was nervous and she was faltering and then my mind went to the the third part of the test which actually we hadn't even asked for or chased or requested and i said has has it shown that something else was wrong with him you know because that's what we were told that 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 waiting for that third element would only show whether that there was something else wrong with him or if Pat and I had in fact given our child the trisomy 18 um so when i asked her um had 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 it shown something else was wrong with him she she just said that she would um that the professor wanted to speak to us and that we'd we'd meet with them next week um so we went to the appointment on the thursday the 4th of april and we met with the professor and the nurse and pat and i both sat down and we could tell that there was a bit of an it was an uncomfortable situation um i could sense that the professor was was unnerved um she basically started by saying that um the 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 third test had come back and it had had shown um something unusual and when we asked what she had said that along with all of the abnormal cells that were shown there was um some normal cells so 
instantly I started questioning whether the child could have what's called trisomy 18 mosaicism, where the trisomy is not in every cell of the child and there is a varying degree of um, um, expression as to how the child um, how the child is. And some children with trisomy 18 mosaicism can actually live quite long life. And I'd asked specifically, had, was there a chance that our baby could have had, this is prior to the termination, could have trisomy 18 mosaicism when we were categorically told no, that our baby had full-blown trisomy 18. So when she said that there was some normal cells, um, my mind started to go into overdrive as to what that meant. And we started to ask questions um, and Pat very um, clearly asked if we had had this information before the termination, what would have been your advice? And she said that it would have been to continue with the termination. So Pat said, so this really, this information doesn't show anything really new to the diagnosis. And she said, no. We asked her if she'd seen it before and she'd said yes. And we asked what had happened in those pregnancies and she said that they had terminated. Pat, how do you remember the run-up to that meeting? Um, Rebecca rang me to say that she'd had a call about her ultrasound appointment and um, the professor wanted to be at the ultrasound review to see if there was... The ultrasound was scheduled to see if there was any placental products retained, part of normal follow-up after delivery. Um, and part of the regular checkups Rebecca had been having, and, and Rebecca had uh, had concerns that something else was up, um, so she rang me to tell me, and um, my gut instinct was something is different. And they had also uh, asked that I be there for the follow up for that meeting, which was a follow up ultrasound, as far as we were concerned. So, um, so I said. Uh, Okay, I look at my diary. I have a fairly busy schedule. Next, we both had busy schedules that following week, and I had a a nine o'clock meeting in town that I had to be at on the Thursday. So they, but I also I rang the the, the unit and said, look, if there's something serious, I'm a doctor. Um, the professor can call me anytime. I we we work in the same sort of areas. She can let me know if there's something that I need to know, so we can be prepared. But. Uh, Please feel free to ring me or send me a message any time to, to ring her back. Um, but I got no call and we uh, we went to that meeting on the um, on the Thursday morning. Um, and as Rebecca said, um, it was a slightly different atmosphere uh, in the, the counselling room that we were so familiar with at this stage. Um, and when she said that there were some uh, along with all the abnormal cells, that there were some normal cells, um, uh, I asked, um, what did the biopsy show? Because I remember lying there after we delivered Christopher with Rebecca, um, being quite anxious that someone would come and take a tissue sample um, and not just leave that opportunity and go, um, because it's it's something really important in medical in the medical world. Um, 
And the response to, to my question as to what did the biopsy show was we didn't take a biopsy, which I found, which I didn't, it, I couldn't reconcile because I had a belief, a memory of them taking a biopsy or taking a sample, uh, at least from the placenta. And then um, I asked, um, so um, this did, uh, have you ever seen this before? Has this ever occurred before? And um, the response was, yes, we've seen this before uh, several times, uh, multiple times. And then I followed up with um and if so what did you do in that in those cases um and the response was well we proceeded in the same manner um so um so rebecca asked then about um so what are the what are the possibilities you said there's some normal cells and um, and the professor said, well, theoretically, I have to say to you that there's a tiny chance um, that there may, that these normal cells may represent that he was a normal child. Um, but that's, in theory, your, your son had trisomy 18. Um, so we understood that he potentially had mosaicism uh, of trisomy 18, which would mean that he didn't have a severe clinical picture, that he could have survived and lived for a while, whether that was years or, or longer, or that he may have had some disability. Well, we were devastated by this and very confused. Then we were segued into a discussion as to where the, the trisomy 18 come from, and that maybe an element of it was transmitted from us, the parents. I was getting confused about this. Uh, I was just a bit bewildered. I think I think we were both a bit lost in that conversation. And we next thing we knew, we were having blood tests taken for um, for whether we were genetically carrying trisomy eighteen in our in our own DNA, um, and uh, and we were segued towards a blood test, and um, and then thereafter, um, well, the results were all put in an envelope and, and uh, sealed in an envelope and put amongst several papers and given to Rebecca. And Rebecca was let off for her ultrasound scan. So, so when the meeting finished, it was not made plain and obvious to the two of you the results as they were and how significant they were. Absolutely not. We were left confused. I felt dumb because I couldn't figure it out. Um, I felt uncertain. I, I can't speak for Rebecca, but I think we were both at a bit of a loss. And and and, um, but Rebecca had, I suppose, been diverted into having an ultrasound to check if she was okay from that point of view and in her aftercare and so on. Yeah, I th I think like we basically got given this very unclear messaging regarding all of the abnormal cells, a very, very small percentage of normal cells. Um, and when we asked, like, well, what does that mean from the perspective of Christopher and the chance of him being able to survive, um, she dismissed that. And she said that, you know, that our child had trisomy 18, that we wouldn't have made any other, you know, he she would not have advised us any other way, but she had to just let us know 
about these normal cells. And you left the hospital then, and Pat had a, a, had an appointment, as I understand, so you, you were left there. Yeah, so I, um, I was then taken into the ultrasound room where the nurse performed the ultrasound, um, and she kept, um, she kept saying that she was sorry, and I couldn't really work out what for. This was the, the antenatal nurse. The antenatal nurse who did the, um, who did the scan, and I kept saying, "Well, Valerie, you know, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Um, you know, it, it, it was just, you know, just terrible that Christopher had trisomy eighteen." And then she said, "Well, you must feel." good knowing that we wouldn't have done anything differently with this new information. And she kept reiterating the point. And then she said to me, when you've gone through the information you've been given, you'll want to come back and speak with the professor. And I was now thinking, what was the messaging in this meeting why was Valerie apologising so much? Why was she saying that I was going to want to come back and speak to them again if we had just heard that this information didn't change anything? So I walked into town and I went to, and I got a coffee and I'd been given a plastic wallet um, and inside was four or five medical, like clinical papers which were varying degrees of um, appropriateness and usefulness on the subject. I looked through them and they were complex and complicated. And um, also inside the plastic wallet was a sealed white envelope. And I opened it and I looked at it and it was the lab results from Scotland for the the, the, the last part of the test and the first line said 46XY XY, which is a normal male chromosome the next line says of all cells tested all were normal and that was how I found out that our son was normal had no trisomy 18 at all no at no point did she mention the carrier type, the normal carrier type? The letter then goes on to explain that um, the phenomena of the abnormal tests in the Harmony and in the QFPCR, the first CVS result, um, can be just um, explained by um, a medical situation called a confined placental mosaicism where the trisomy 18 is 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 just in the placenta and not in the baby and you are testing cell-free DNA when you're doing the harmony test and then you're testing the placenta, the placenta DNA DNA and not the child and therefore you are basically confirming the false positive with like for like. And Pat, Rebecca found out there, and how did you have it confirmed? Rebecca found out um, on her own, without any support, 
in a coffee shop in Dublin. And her dad, she sent a message to her dad and he he told her, get home and and just get yourself home. Just take it easy and and have a think about things and we'll be in touch. I myself had gone, as I said, a bit bewildered from that meeting into another meeting and then an operating list where um, it was busy, but there were gaps between cases and none of the work was very, very complex, thankfully, that day. But I started looking at the internet, um, trying to figure out what was this mix of uh, normal and abnormal um, tissues from in, in this testing sequence. And I, I started to find out, ironically, after the event, that there was a situation where the placenta is far more likely to have DNA abnormality than the baby. Uh, particularly in trisomy 18, it's of the order of three or four to one. And and this was complete news to me. I mean, it was, but I found the papers back from the late 90s into 2000, 2009, 2010 and thereafter, warning and highlighting this fact. And I was like a bit bewildered about what we had been through in the, the meeting and then finding these facts uh, on PubMed, which is the medical and scientific publication literature. Um, we had never had an awareness of these phenomena beforehand. Um, we, I had not any conscious knowledge of anything like that as being a possibility. Um, and subsequently, um, I rang an obstetrician in, in Holland. And the first thing he said to me was, well, um, uh, you know, it's far more common for the placenta to have trisomy 18 than, than the fetus. And when you have a normal, or so when you have an abnormal nip test for trisomy 18, there's only a 27% chance that your child has actually got trisomy 18. And he also confirmed, and as far as I know, um, it's true that you can't tell from these tests whether your child has full-blown Edward syndrome, which is maybe truly a fatal condition, or a milder variation. And particularly when you have a normal ultrasound, there's every possibility that, this, that even at 27% and all the other predictive values are incorrect because a normal ultrasound does not back up Edwards syndrome. And so did you realise then the enormity of it? Or I, I didn't. You in contact? I, sorry, I should, I should be. Uh, I, I rang Rebecca in the afternoon to see how she was as soon as I got a chance and as soon as my mind was kind of coming around. And she was very distressed and she says, just get home as fast as you can. So I legged it home as fast as I could after work. And I found her upstairs in the dark and I said, um, babe, I, I, I just found some stuff saying that trisomy 18 in placenta, uh, trisomy 18 is far more common in the placenta than, than it is in the baby. And, and she just, she was crying and she handed me the, um, the report. And, um, and it confirmed, confirmed that Christopher was, was probably not fatally affected by anything. And um, subsequent to that, you you had um, a genetic test done at a laboratory in yeah. Germany, and that's so. Um, so I rang a, I rang a colleague. Um, I rang Crumlin Hospital actually, and asked to be put on to one of the clinical geneticists. And um, 
I actually write, actually the first thing I said to him was, I'm, I'm sorry you, um, for disturbing you. No, you probably already know of our case because we understood that the National Clinical Geneticists Group were linked to um, the hospital and were consulted on all important genetics issues. Um, and he said, I know nothing about you. <laughs> In his typical blunt fashion. Um, even though he knew me as a colleague, um, and we went to meet him the following morning, and then, then we were left with a, a challenge as to what was the actual truth. He came back and said there are a number of things, but um, but unfortunately, we have no tissue. Um, no, um, we had, we our boy was cremated, and we have his ashes um, at home on the hill, and. Um, but Rebecca remembered that she had a tissue sample that she had kept as umbilical cord, and she said, "We have some tissue." I I kept the umbilical cord of Christopher because I can always remember my mum had kept mine and my sister's, and they were in a little box in her jewelry box. And I asked the midwife if I could keep Christopher's umbilical cord as a keepsake. And so when really Reardon had said to us, from what I can see from the paperwork and the tests, they've jumped the gun. He was normal. But ideally, we need to verify that by doing a, another test. Um, but we don't have tissue. I said, well, I do. I've got his umbilical cord. I've I've kept it in a, it's in a box. And he, he said, well, if you can send it to me, I can, um, see if it will, um, it will form and produce stable DNA that can then be used to do a test. So the lab in Crumlin was able to, um, grow the DNA, develop the DNA, and then it was sent to Germany to a, a lab called um, Centogene, and then the the test came back to confirm that um, yes, the the test that was done in Scotland was correct, and Christopher had a normal male carrier type, um, and that not only did he not have trisomy eighteen mosaicism, he he. There was nothing. There was nothing. He was. He was a normal boy. Could I ask you, Pat, one thing about the um, the law that was in place and the guidelines and the procedure? And as we know, the, the law came into force on the first of January two thousand nineteen. Ironically, a week after we discovered we were pregnant. Yeah. Do you have any sense that um, the way in which that was managed? nationally in terms of guidelines in terms of what should be done are, are you happy that all of that was okay because your case is if not the first one of the first that would have arisen in relation to the new legislation so i started to kind of backtrack statistically going how did this happen to us and and how and what should have happened and one of the things we did uh, i suppose in the weeks afterwards when we discovered that there was a major error or a never event had occurred we, we came across the legislation and like section after section we found that our experience nowhere matched 
the guidelines that had been carefully constructed and put in place. And we were just bewildered. I mean, couldn't believe that that could happen. We don't know that anyone really checked whether all teams and hospitals were briefed on the guidelines and their implementations in a cohesive and structured manner, and whether there was any performance measures or checklists to see that these were being complied with. Um, the other thing was that very clearly in the guidelines, it states that multiple inputs will be needed into um, making decisions so that if you do have a potential fatal fetal abnormality or, or situation or termination under the, the guidelines after 12 weeks, that there should be multidisciplinary uh, discussion and involvement, that it should involve multiple clinicians with expertise in the relevant areas, including um, neonatology, radiology, of course, clinical genetics. Um, and and one of the questions that um, I had from the obstetrician in Holland when I rang him was, what was our clinical geneticist saying in the counselling prior to any termination or, or uh, investigations taking place? Well, we had no access to, and nobody does, it seems to um, specialists who are really needed in an area which is not black and white, as we can see um, in the decision-making. There, there are balances and possibilities and probabilities with all types of tests. And it's almost like the most normal components, the normal, repeatedly normal ultrasounds are being completely disregarded and questionable statistical judgments were being made without any consultation with people who knew more or knew better. As in the, and somebody who was expert in genetics as opposed to obstetrics. Yeah, but even um, multiple obstetrics opinions might, might be safer than one. Um, we have no way of confirming that multiple or even more than one obstetrics opinion was was at play in, in this critical decision on the life of our boy. And because we took they it said there faith. was no second examination, well, but, but the, the hospital has said that uh, a second physician uh, did examine the file and, and uh, the notes on Rebecca's case. That, that, that's the hospital's position. There's nothing formal in the notes to show of any examination of the, of the notes. There's no, there's no written account or even acknowledgement that a, a a second obstetrician looked through the notes. There's there's nothing to show. Um, bearing in mind, I got the phone call from the nurse with the test results at about half past four on the Friday afternoon, and I had been ringing all day asking had the results come in, had the results come in, and been told no, no, no. And she rang me as soon as they had come in this at is, about this is the first CVS results at about half past four in the afternoon, and we met with the professor the following Monday morning. First thing, first thing, first appointment of her day. So, and it was in that meeting that we basically went through the long and agonising discussion that led to us eventually agreeing that we would go through with the termination. So I do not see when that second consultant could have reviewed my file. 
in a careful and considered manner. In it, a careful and considered you manner. You must be joking. But and that is the position of the hospital. Just well, to, that, but, yeah. but I think the whole world knows what a second opinion is. And that's a second opinion in consultation with the patients involved. We all work in the... We all... We all in, I'd say the whole public... And the direction to that effect was issued later in the year from um, come Henry the HSE to the maternity hospitals in terms of interpreting the legislation. Uh, but uh, as but even saying. the people who drafted the legislation confirmed to us yeah. that they, their vision and their understanding, their understanding in dr- drawing up and writing the legislation is directly that. The word examination is the crucial word here. And um, when we met with the Department of Health, we asked Geraldine Luddy, who was one of the um, um, like co-authors. co-authors of the legislation, what the what the interpretation, the meaning of the word um, examination um, was. And she confirmed that it was um, physical examination. What's very important to also note is that um, this was actually highly um, discussed during the repeal um, campaign because when the um, the when the yes um, the the pro-choice movement were um, advocating for um, the repeal this was one of the main elements was that you know you can trust the doctors because there'll be two doctors two consultants have to examine the mother. And this was something that had been taken from the previous um, legislation. And it was very clear that that was to stay. Um, What's highly disturbing is that the interim guidelines clearly state best practice. And if that had been done, the tragedy of losing Christopher would not have happened to us. The other thing that arises, Rebecca, is, as you can well imagine, um, the whole issue, uh, as I said, it went on for decades here. Quite obviously, people on both sides of it have very firmly held and strong opinions. And then this case arises, and it would strike me that there are perhaps two schools of thought at the uh, at the far end, if you want to put it, of the argument on both sides. You have one on the, the pro-life side that would say this demonstrates that the law is not fit for purpose. You'll have some people also on the pro-choice side who will say absolutely they'd agree this is a tragic case but that hard cases make bad law and at the heart of it it's a human story but how do you feel about people they're going to perhaps observe this and see it reflected through their political beliefs rather than a human tragedy? Yeah, I think you make you you raise some good points, and it was never and remains not our intention to in any way polarize um, people. I think that the the issue here is um, pro choice should be exactly that. Um, it should be choice made on um, on correct and correct information. It should be informed choice. If the way in which these tests are carried out and the way in which they are then um, explained and counselled to the parents is incorrect, there is no way for the parents to make the right choice for them. And it's not an excuse to have sloppy, bad medicine um, at the, um, uh, under the argument of, of, of pro-choice. 
Yeah, and obviously, I suppose some people would would um, would, would take issue with the description as sloppy, but quite obviously that, that, that that's something to be determined. There was obviously errors. There's absolutely no question of that. If you were asked for your input to change or to moderate uh, the, the law as it stands and the practice, is there anything specific you would like to see in there that would perhaps go, go towards ensuring that this never happens again? Mick, from what we... What we can see and what we can understand, if the law, if the legislation and the guidelines, the interim guidelines had been followed, we would not have been in this situation. But um, the elements that would, that there needs to be more focus on is genetic counselling. And when I mean counselling, it's the interpretation of the genetic uh, tests that are taken. But also there needs to be uh, pathology taken because if a hospital is terminating under the diagnosis of an FFA, then they have to prove that FFA and they have to be absolutely 100% sure to the absolute best of their knowledge that the child does have an FFA before they carry out or before they authorise a termination. And if a pathology was taken after delivery of the child, then this would ensure that the the clinicians making that decision would be absolutely sure and they would be waiting for every test and they would be asking for every opinion and they would be speaking to their genetic colleagues and they would be counselling the patients and the parents absolutely to the best of their ability. Rebecca and Pat, thank you for talking to me today. That's it for this week, folks. I suppose just to say... Judge Paul Coffey, in front of whom the settlement was made this week in Rebecca and Pat's case, he described it as a case which has at its heart a human tragedy of very great proportions. And I think that really says it all. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening and we'll see you again soon. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.